If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Emily Tish Sussman. Emily is a veteran political strategist, and you may have seen her on your television covering some of the most important and heated election cycles including the 2016 election, which Emily argues was the most important and consequential election of her lifetimes. And I happen to agree. Emily has interviewed everyone from Speaker Nancy Pelosi to Vice President Kamala Harris. Emily also has her own podcast titled She Pivots, where she talks with a diverse group of women to explore what led to their professional and personal pivots and how that eventually led them to success. And that's where Emily and I begin our conversation. We talk about her professional and personal trajectory from political strategist to becoming a mother and launching sheep pivots, of course. We also talk about the 2024 election cycle, including what we can and should expect from the media in terms of their coverage of women candidates. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Emily Tish Sussman. Emily Tish Sussman, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I would love to start off by talking about your professional trajectory, if you don't mind, because I read an essay that you wrote about how you moved from politics or you're still in politics, but you started a podcast. And if I'm not mistaken, you were pregnant while working on the 2016 campaign with Hillary Clinton. When I was pregnant, my second shift was napping, right? I just want to know what that time was like for you and how you pivoted. Well, my pregnancy actually kept me from working on her campaign directly. I had thought that I would work on her campaign. That had been my dream. I was working for the largest progressive think tank in Washington, the Center for American Progress. And then I found out I was pregnant and I had never seen a pregnant person work on a campaign before. I had never seen a person with kids work on a campaign before. And I did not think it was possible. So I kind of resigned myself to staying in my job, which by the way, was a good job. Like it wasn't a good job, but it wasn't working the presidential. And even if I had wanted to get on the campaign pregnant, my second shift was napping. Like I was so brain dead and so tired. I had that mountain of heels under my desk that like, you know, every person who's working in an office has, like that mountain of heels. I would nap on top of it every day because I couldn't even keep my eyes open. I was a mess when I was pregnant. So I stayed at the think tank. I had the baby. I went to the convention, saw her take the nomination in Philadelphia in August. And then five days later, I was on CNN. And then that night went into labor with my first baby. So I was on maternity leave for the entire fall of 2016, which meant that I could be on TV all the time because like I wasn't like encumbered by my day-to-day from the office. So I was on air as a surrogate for her campaign, just talking about the election and trying to prepare for, you know, the Clinton presidency, obviously. My first day back from maternity leave back in the office was the Monday after the election and everybody was crying, was not in the office, didn't know what their job was supposed to be. But I came in with like a really clear head because I had that back at work. Like it wasn't just focus. It was like the, like I had to prove it. I had to prove myself. I had to prove that I was the same worker that I was before I had gone on maternity leave. So I was like super charged up. I hadn't been in the weeds in the day to day because I'd been out of the office on maternity leave. And then I basically got pregnant immediately again. It was eight months old. So my second maternity leave was about 15 months into the Trump presidency. 
And while I was on maternity leave, I was like, oh my God, what am I killing myself in this job for? Like, I thought that we were actually rebut the impact of the Trump presidency. And I'm not sure we're making a difference. I'm so sick. I'm killing myself in this job. I can't keep up my job. I can't keep up. I barely ever see my kids, which I wasn't actually that upset about because I wasn't really into babies. Like, I couldn't be in my job the way that I knew I needed to show up. So I didn't go back at the end of my second maternity leave, which killed me because I this was my dream job to work at the think tank except for, of course, the presidential campaign, which I didn't get to do. But I, so I just started doing some independent political consulting. I started a political podcast, helping people to decipher through the 2020 presidential election, like which candidate they would want to support in the primary. Got to the, that election was quarantined with COVID for the last two weeks of the election. Now I've had a third kid by this time, by the way. So now I have three kids under four. That was a great time too. But then, you know, going into the Biden presidency, People were kind of less interested in politics. I was kind of less interested in like the nitty gritty. Like I was so in the weeds when I was really in it and when I lived in Washington. And I felt like everything that I knew how to evaluate myself by, like all of my metrics for personal success were all tied to my professional accomplishments and they were all tied to political professional accomplishments. And those things just were not available to me anymore. Like I didn't live in Washington anymore. I had three kids under four. I wasn't at a think tank. Like I just, none of those things that I evaluated myself, I couldn't do them. I mean, it broke me. It truly honestly broke me. And I started to think about what can I do? And is there a life that looks like some kind of success that I would evaluate myself by? Like, I just, I never really saw myself in any sort of like maternal role, mothering like that was not particularly fulfilling for me. The older they got, the more it was interesting, but not fulfilling in the same way as professional success. So I just started thinking about like, who do I need to hear from, from inspiration? I need to hear from people who change their careers. Like on paper, their careers looked great. Like they had done everything right, but something personal changed in their life that made them change their perspective. And then they found a different kind of success. So I thought, well, podcasting is what I know. I started pitching it to a bunch of media outlets and the show I host now, She Pivots the Podcast was created and I hosted for Marie Claire Magazine. So I have a column with the magazine. I write on the people that I interview. I write on some other interesting topics like the life and death and maybe life again of paid leave. <laughs> and it's just a very different kind of success for me now. And by the way, I'm calling it success like in quotes. Is that like my new metric? It's a different kind of metrics for success for me. I think that I'm on a different path now. It's hard for me to totally be out of politics altogether. I work much more locally now than when I worked on federal issues. But I also live in like one of the biggest swing districts in the country and feel like I didn't do enough in the congressional. So, you know, who knows what's going to happen there? <laughs> okay. So a lot to unpack there. First of all, how are you not, you have three kids under four, right? How are you not napping right now? I'm wearing a stained sweatshirt that I put on to drop my kids off this morning and just arrived back home from drop off. So, <laughs> okay. Okay. That answers that question. And you know, that was a really surreal, weird period before. I want to go back to 2016, but that was a really weird, surreal period between 2019 and the 2020 election. Like, I hear you when you say like, a lot of people didn't really want to talk about politics, right? And for me, I felt like we were all just exhausted. We were just so, I was exhausted, right? Especially for people like us who are kind of in the thick of the meaty political debate all the time. And there's a pandemic and you have children and there's this person trumpeting nonsense, you know, from the White House all the time. And then I live on the West Coast. So we had these wildfires, right? And there was a pandemic. It was just so much. And I didn't want to think or talk about politics anymore, but I felt like we had to. We had to because there's this huge election coming in 2020. 
So it was just a really surreal period. And I don't know if that's what you meant by people not wanting to talk about politics around that period or not. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think when I said people lost interest in politics, I was kind of minimizing it. And the metric in my head is that people literally lost interest in listening to my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was really the, the losing interest for me. But yeah, no, it wasn't a losing interest. You're right. It was a total exhaustion. It was, we, our bodies physically went into panic mode in the 2016 election. And we put everything on the line and we changed our lives for a lot of people whether we became hyper-focused on what was happening on a federal level or looking at state legislative races across the country to support that we'd never done before or marching or in having conversations with our kids that we hadn't been prepared to have. Like everyone's life changed a little bit and it kind of changed a lot actually. And so we were also just exhausted, you know, throw a global pandemic onto that, which totally upended everything in our lives and our structure of what we thought we had to have, could have, I mean, I had this grand vision of throwing myself into the 2020 presidential and being, you know, the mom who came back and did it because by that point there were a couple of pregnant people and people who had kids on working on campaigns. But that whole idea was predicated on me having childcare and I didn't have it in a global pandemic with a three-week-old baby and a two-year-old and a three-year-old. So like any vision I was capable of was totally gone by that point. So I was physically exhausted. I was mentally exhausted. It was exhausting to think every day about how do we fight back against these policies we thought were too terrible, like nobody could ever bring them. And they were happening every day. I mean, that was a big piece of why I left the think tank is that my job, part of my job was to be organizing our response to the Trump presidency's policies as he was announcing them to think about, you know, how do we bring in a policy response to this and hopefully blunt the impact of it. But he announced a lot of policies without warning and by tweet either Friday nights or Sundays. Well, those are days that I didn't have any childcare. So here I was trying to like organize our organizational response when I had like a kid crying and napping, you know, whatever it was. And when I say I just physically couldn't do my job anymore, like I physically couldn't do my job anymore. But yeah, everybody was exhausted in some way. And to feel like we had this massive election coming up that we had to, you know, 2020, like we needed to organize, like people were really exhausted and for good reason. That's why I will always give props to the people who were on the ground during that campaign. And, you know, they really brought it home. But I am stuck on something else you said. You said that you'd never seen a pregnant person work on a campaign, right? That was, you know, during the 2016 cycle. You'd never seen a pregnant person. But we do know that there are people who are working on campaigns. I'm particularly thinking of men who do have children. <laughs> there are children somewhere in the background and someone's taking care of them, right? And it's probably not the men who are still working. But, you know, this happens to a lot of women. And I'm curious about your specific situation, because I know when I had my first child and my husband, my husband and I, we were in similar careers. We were working in technology. So I had a front row seat to see how men and women were treated differently when they start a family. If I had done this without working with someone who was in the same career, that would be fine. But I saw it. I saw the difference and it was really stark. And I, I can't remember ever hearing a man who's working in politics on any level say, you know, I've got to step back because I'm starting a family. I mean, have you ever seen that? What is it like from your perspective in D.C. or when you were in D.C.? Yeah, very rarely. I will say that at the think tank where I work, there was actually, I think we're a little ahead of our time. There was everybody, regardless of gender, parenting status, everyone who had a child got 12 weeks, six paid, six unpaid, and everybody took it. So culturally, that was incredibly important at the think tank. And most people did it not for equity reasons, but they did it for financial reasons. So what they would do is they would stagger the leave. 12 weeks is pretty standard among like Democratic organizations in Washington. 
So generally they would have the first parent, generally, if it was there was a birthing parent, the birthing parent take the first 12 weeks, and then the second parent would take the second 12 weeks. Well, that's deferring six months of childcare. Like that's a pretty significant cost difference. So that was the reason that most people did it. But it ended up having a really positive cultural impact on where I work that most of the kind of mid-level managers at some point, whether it was the actual manager or just a manager on your team, would take 12 weeks of leave. So we were culturally built into having people coming in and out 12 weeks at a time. And so we knew how to build a system to cover for them, to not you know, encroach upon their portfolio. Like we knew how to do it. And so it wasn't like every time somebody got pregnant and you know, had a baby left, it wasn't like this big question about how it was gonna be handled. And it also meant that there was no motherhood penalty. If it was just the women who were taking the leave or taking the full leave, then there culturally can become a penalty around it. But there really wasn't because everybody took it. I will say at the same time, my husband worked in the Senate where the, well, for our first child, actually first two, I think first two, he worked in the Senate where there actually is no standard leave policy. It's office by office what they want to give. He worked for Senator Chris Murphy, who was a wonderful human from Connecticut. And Chris Murphy gave his office for paternity 12 weeks. I mean, sorry, not 12, but he gave my husband four weeks. So on a policy level, I'm like, I love when the husbands have the full leave. On a personal level, I was like, oh my God, go back to work. Please like get out of my hair. I just want to be miserable on my own. And I don't want anybody else watching me be miserable. So please go back to work. So, you know, I'm a little talking out of the both sides of my mouth on that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So my husband had, he had leave too, but that was with the second child. But most people don't have that. And that's a big problem. No, I mean, it's a huge, look, we are the lucky ones. 12 weeks was my kids were just sleeping through the night. And so I was like barely a functioning human. If I had to be in my seat before that, when my kids were waking up all night long, I would have been a shell of a person. Like the employee you were paying for would not be the employee that you were getting. And the fact that we are the lucky ones with any percentage of paid leave is insane. Like it's insane from a humanitarian perspective in the US. It's an insane from an economic perspective. You're getting no productivity. People leave their jobs because they can't go back or they can't take the leave. The fact that we don't have a national paid leave policy, I'm, there's grumblings of it becoming a bigger federal issue. I don't have great hopes with Republicans in charge of the House this year of it actually passing, although Biden has articulated that he would sign it into law if they do. The way that Republicans, there are Republicans who are interested in paid leave. There are some. They don't want a national paid leave policy. The way they want to do it is with borrowing from child, from they either want like borrow out of social security or with something similar like child tax credits. I don't think that's ultimately the way to do it. Like, I think you just need a national paid leave program because you also need small businesses to be able to afford it. I'm encouraged by the fact that it's finally almost a conversation. Like we were so close last Congress. Truly, it was only because of Joe Manchin not understanding why someone (laughs) could need paid leave. Truly, that is the only reason it did not pass. But the fact that we are finally getting there, like it's so long overdue, but I'm a little bit hopeful that it will actually pass in the next few years. I think one of the most important things that you mentioned that this is kind of a cultural problem, because right now it's left into the hands of the private sector, right? Whether they want to give their employees leave or not. But I like to think of things in the context of legislative solutions. One positive thing that happened last year, and this is kind of ironic, given that the Dobbs decision also came down last year, was that the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act passed and it goes into effect in June of 2023, which would have helped me, but it's going to help a lot of women because what it does is it requires that workplaces give them less physically demanding and safer positions. You know, they get breaks, you know, they have lots of different policies that will help women or people generally who are pregnant 
And like I said, that goes into effect in June of 2023. And I just wanted to know what you think about that. You know, what kind of positive effects do you think that that would have on women broadly in the workplace? Look, I'm thrilled that we're legislating for women. Like I'm thrilled that we're legislating for women at all. I'm thrilled that we're legislating for pregnant women. I'm thrilled that we're acknowledging that this is a major physical tax. I think that for, you know, kind of the generation above ours, like the ethos was don't acknowledge that anything happens to you when you have kids. Like don't acknowledge because you want to be seen as like a worker, like a hard worker, you know, like don't acknowledge that you're changed. I think for our generation, it's different. I think that we are acknowledging that like things happen to us physically, things happen to us emotionally, things happen to us hormonally, and we can't operate in a system that isn't set up for us. So the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act moves the ball forward a little bit. It does it not everything. It's not perfect, but that's how federal government moves, right? Like it moves in building blocks. It moves step by step and you have to build. It's like when particles are flowing through the ocean, right? Like if the particles are just flowing, then they don't catch onto anything and nothing builds. But if the coral reef is there, like that one little piece, then things can start to build on top of it. So we'll consider this like the little initial piece of coral. You know, you said something else that I wanted to dig in deeper because, you know, even when we have legislation like this in place, I know for me, sometimes it's hard to admit that something's changed. I remember when I had my first child and I would have to leave for like some school meeting, I would make something up. <laughs> right. Like everyone knew that I had a family. Everyone knew that I had kids and I had school things and like sick days and things I needed to do. But it wasn't something that I was as open or upfront about because I was afraid of being penalized. And I don't know if you felt the same way. Like you want to put yourself on the same playing field as the people around you who don't have a family or the men around you. And, you know, I think that culturally that's something that we need to change too. I just think being more open about it and being more upfront about it. Also, by the way, acknowledging that not every problem is the same. I actually didn't really have a problem with the men in my office not understanding what I was going through. They were pretty understanding. I actually, more challenges came from younger women, childless younger women that thought that they were being theoretically supportive of women, but that didn't understand that the challenges that I was going through were not the same as others. Like I remember this one woman in my office complaining about, you know, like, yeah, some people with kids like need to push back their start time a little bit later because they have kids drop off with like, what about the people that like to go to workout class in the morning? And I was like, well, that's not the same. That's actually not the same. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we've been afraid to say that not everything is the same or that things are not all the same. You know, so I think having more open and honest conversations about that actually are going to become beneficial. I will tell you the one place that I did see it is that in order to cover some of my responsibilities while I was out on maternity leave, we ended up giving them over to a man internally, which it wasn't until a few years later on when I was in charge of the budget that I saw that he had actually gotten a pay increase for taking over parts of my responsibilities that had never gone away. Yeah, that was quite confusing to me. I was like, but don't we all just cover for each other because everyone goes up? Like when he went on paternity leave, I didn't get a pay bomb for taking over his responsibilities. Wow. Yeah. That was quite shocking to me. It's actually surprising that you found out about it. Honestly, it was only because I then had the budget years later on and I was like, what is happening with this? And so I looked back and traced it back to that. Oh, wow. So I want to go back a bit to how we started this conversation, because I think a lot of people, especially a lot of women, they do make these professional and personal pivots, and it's really hard. And I think that sometimes we are our own harshest critics in that respect. We have trouble accepting the newer versions of ourselves, especially when we're shifting away from you know, possibly lifelong visions of our careers or ourselves. So can you talk a bit more about that shift for you? 
I've spent my life, my career thinking at the way that I was going to make an impact in the world was through changing laws. Like they just felt so huge. It felt so important that it felt like I could sacrifice for this greater goal of changing laws that would help people's lives. And I did it for a lot of years. Now that that's not accessible to me, it's hard to swallow. It's hard to think about. But I also am thinking more about how I can have an impact in different ways. Part of that is culture change. Part of that is changing locally. It's always a pull and push for me. Like I'm always going back and forth. Like I'm never going to find a balance. I'm never going to have it all. But thinking about what am I okay with giving up today in search of a different goal? Or maybe it's a personal, like I'm just trying to have like a small win every day. And sometimes it's for me personally, and sometimes it's for my kids, and sometimes it's for my work, and sometimes it's for my community. But like it's never going to be a balance. And just thinking about what am I okay with giving up for something else? But the thing about our lives as parents, right, is that it's never just kind of one straight path. Five years from now, your life will probably look completely different. Maybe you'll go back. I don't know. Have you thought about that? I have. The beginning of the Biden administration was really hard for me because everyone I worked with was going into the administration. And I was like, wow, I've always wanted to work in the White House. I've never gotten that opportunity to. If I was still in Washington, what kind of job would I be doing? You know, my husband and I talked about it. It was not the moment for us to move back to Washington and to be in contention and to be back in the mix. Like, it's just really clear that this moment is not that moment. And it would take kind of a lot for us to go back. But there are some people that we would go back for. So Cory Booker, namely. Who doesn't love Cory Booker? It's hard to not love Cory Booker. Love. I would go back for him. Okay. Well, speaking of Cory Booker and presidential cycles, you know, the 2024 cycle is upon us. I am very, very nervous about how pundits and analysts and those types will discuss women, both the candidates and constituents, right? But I want to start with the candidates because it's really starting already. Some of the, the rhetoric that we heard with the 2016 campaign with Hillary Clinton is happening now, you know, even though there haven't been any official declarations on the Democratic side. But you hear it in relation to Vice President Kamala Harris, who I know you've interviewed, by the way. Tell me about that, first of all, before we get into the question, what was that like? Oh, it was really exciting. I have to be honest, like, I don't get nervous very often. And right before we went on stage, she wanted to do, so I interviewed her alongside Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan from Minnesota. We were in Minnesota. And right before we were supposed to go on stage, I mean, there was so much like process, you know, getting there and the checkpoints and like all of it. They said, don't go on stage yet. The vice president wants to meet you guys, wants to talk to you guys first because she hadn't spoken to the, the Lieutenant Governor yet. I was like, oh, okay. So they pull us back. God, this is, wait, I don't think I should say her name. Okay. But she got really nervous. The other person that I was in the room with got really nervous and it kind of clammed up and it made me really nervous because I was like, wait a second, I'm standing here in a group with like this important person, the vice president of the United States, and I'm just like a podcast host. Like she seems nervous. I'm supposed to be nervous, right? And then I got nervous. But once we got on stage, she was so great and flowing and we had a great vibe. And quite frankly, a couple of memes came out of that conversation which I was thrilled about. The vice president talking about Venn diagrams, talking about what she does to like her workout routine. So, you know, what can, more can you want in this day and age? Was that the Venn diagram conversation? Like, I didn't know where that came from. Yeah, that was my question to her. <laughs> I didn't know that. Wow, fascinating. During the summer, she had done a stop near me. And so I brought my three kids thinking like, this is my moment, like merge my like mommy life, like meet the vice president and all these staffers that I know. And of course, my two-year-old who is so defiant pulled one of her two pigtails straight out. She's one pigtail in, one like fluffy side of her head, pulls her dress off and starts running to grab the vice president's leg and then running away like as if she was playing some game of like tag. I am mortified beyond mortified. And the vice president was so 
kind in that moment. She was like, who's this little one? I was like, oh God, I don't even know this little one. Like this, <laughs> not mine. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, not mine. But she was amazing in that moment. Yeah. So here's the thing. And this is what I'm worried about. So over the weekend, some person, a professional person on social media, you know, said something about VP Harris. The assumption is, is that she's going to run with Biden during the 2024 cycle. That's the assumption, right? So this person said, I don't know what it is about her. I just find her fake and inauthentic. Is that sexist? And this, like I said, this is a very professional person. And that's my biggest worry, that these people who are in this professionally, who should know at this juncture, what is gendered wording? What are gendered descriptors for women? And they don't know. And so the conclusion of that post was like, I find her fake. And therefore, I don't think she's going to be a good president. <laughs> that's my worry right? Because we haven't learned anything. Well, we don't know what a female president looks like because we've never had one. I have a problem with that analysis of like, well, you know, they just don't look presidential. Just came out quite with my finger on it. Well, because we've never had one before. So actually we have no idea what the model looks like. So it's really hard to say in that case, if they can match up to it. I mean, I'll tell you something about being an on-air pundit, which I've done for about 10 years and about like the Twitterverse where a lot of politicals are, is that the interests of being either of those two things are not aligned with having a better country or like moving the conversation forward. Like the goal in the Twitterverse is to say things that are very extreme so that people react to it. Then you are driving the conversation. And a lot of reporters get a lot of their ideas or take their pulse on an issue from what they see on Twitter because it's easy. That concerns me a lot because that is not representative of the population. And I actually think the democratic circles have had their finger off the pulse for the last couple of cycles for the most part because their staff spends too much time on Twitter. From the political pundit perspective, like especially on air, on cable news, is that you always have to have something new to say. Like no one's going to book you to go on TV just to say, oh, it seems kind of fine. I don't know. Let's just go with the flow. Like no one's going to book you to say that. Yeah. So if the candidate is the same, if the running mate is the same, there's nothing new to say. So pundits are always looking for something new to say and a new angle to say. And if they can say something that's a, sort of similar to Twitter, like a little bit controversial, like get the other people on air to respond to it, then they've made for a good segment. And so they will keep finding these things to talk about. I mean, can you, there has not been a conversation about will the vice president run with the sitting president as far as I can remember. Like nobody was asking, oh, is Pence not going to run with him? I mean, maybe because they were like all going to jail or something. But like nobody said like, oh, is Biden going to run with Obama? I'm not really sure if he's going to run with him again. Like, why not? You know, like it wasn't in the conversation. It's just that we have so much more news coverage now, honestly, that people need something to talk about. And if you're not going to speculate if the president's running or not, then you might as well speculate about the vice president. It's like just a way to be in the conversation. But it definitely does not help the country in any way. No, you're absolutely right. And I did notice that. I have noticed that watching the cycles. They just kind of need to fill the airtime, right? And they just kind of say sometimes any old thing, right? Just to, you know, get a reaction. You know, but my second concern is that how we talk about women, right? The constituency, because I remember 2022, the conversation, you know, leading up to the midterms was like, women don't care about abortion. They care about economic issues like the price of eggs, <laughs> which is problematic on so many levels, right? I would like for pundits to talk about the fact that regardless of the price of eggs, women aren't getting paid as much as men still, right? And they're losing jobs at a higher rate. I think, you know, this whole spate of tech layoffs, I read a report that said something like 65% of those were women who were laid off. So anyway, so I would like to hear them talk about 
women in a more progressive way as constituents. And I'm not sure. I feel kind of powerless in that sense. Well, I think doing what you're doing, setting this ground for the conversation, we all do what we can do. Like you have a platform here, right? Like we're doing it. We're doing it by having the conversation. So I give you credit for that, for continuing to bring that conversation about, because it'll give people more of a pause when they think about it. To think that how and when you start your family is not an economic issue is so divorced from reality. And so just not, like it's such an old school, like X and Y graph way of thinking about economics. Like it's just so not grounded in reality. So yes, of course, women are concerned about economics and they're concerned about whether or not they can feed their kids they already have. We know that more than half of women who have abortions are already mothers. We know these things. And like, yes, it, it does continue to be an economic issue. And by the way, the people who work in abortion rights will tell you what I just said is not the winning argument. They will tell you that you should talk about humanity and you should talk about the bodily autonomy because that is what sways people. But I also think that when we're talking about the economics, we actually have to talk about how and when you start your family and the ability to make those decisions and your medical costs as part of that economic calculation that women are going to be making more than men are going to be making. Like that is real. And so it should be part of the conversation about the economy and how women are beginning to think about it. But also if they can't keep their jobs because their kids are in and out because they're sick all the time and they can't get childcare, that is also an economic issue. That is a productivity issue. That is a sense of self issue. The fact that we have had this silo of what we consider like family economy issues, whether it's paid leave or a pregnant workers act or covering what is part of the affordable care act now, like well visits and not being able to discriminate against women on health plans because they're, those are, by the way, were fixed because of the Affordable Care Act. But the fact that we've considered those like fringe economic issues and not core economic issues, I think is where the economists and analysts have been off. And I hope does change. I think a lot of the tone has to be set a lot by the leaders. That comes from the leaders of the presidential parties who are going to be running because a lot of the news coverage will drive from them and the way they frame the conversations and the way they frame the issues. Most of the reasons that presidential candidates, any candidate at any level, puts out a policy platform is not because they think that they're going to enact every single thing they do. It's because they're indicating to voters where they have values. If you have a plan for it, you value it. If you don't have a plan for it, you don't value it. So I think that can drive a lot of the conversation. Absolutely. So what are you, speaking of the 2024 cycle, what are you most hopeful about and what worries you the most? What worries me the most is that you know, we've said every year for the last couple of years that it's the most important election of our lifetime. I'd actually posit that we already had the most important election of our lifetime and that it was 2016. And I think that we are now just trying to buffer the impact of the policies and culturally where we went from that election. I think we're just trying to, to undo them and hopefully move forward. So my concern is that we've turned the temperature so high for voters and they're still suffering. They're still suffering from the impacts of COVID economically, like all of that that they're not going to be as engaged and it's going to be really hard to get people's attention. And then we let some of these crazies just like slip right through, whether it's like the next George Santos, Marjorie Taylor Greene, like she's got real power now. Kevin McCarthy is, stands for nothing, but has empowered a lot of people that have some really crazy ideas and their impact can be quite great at a federal level. So I worry about apathy because the conversation is so extreme. We don't know how to filter out what is real and what is not and that we just tune out a little bit because it's so much. So that I think continues to be the biggest thing that worries me. What makes me hopeful is that I think that we're going to see 
continued really good examples of women and younger women and moms who said, I'm taking this community into my own hands. They ran for the school board. They ran for the water superintendent. They're running for Congress. Like they're not waiting. Generally, women didn't run for office until it was their second career. Like they kind of waited till their kids were out of their house to run. We're not seeing that anymore. Now we're seeing women saying, I'm dealing with these impacts every single day. I should be in the conversation. I should be in the middle of the room. And so I'm going to run. And that makes me hopeful. Well, Emily Tish Sussman, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a true pleasure to talk to you, truly. Great. Thank you so much. It's been great to talk to you.